Second Corinthians chapter one, beginning in verse 23, Paul writes, moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth, not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow, for if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I come, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. As we've looked at the book of Second Corinthians in chapter 1, we've, we've discovered something. That ministry isn't for the faint of heart. The minister can rest assured that he or she will come under criticism and come under attack. And part of the point as we begin this particular study is you'll remember that Paul was accused of being insincere. Some of the people in Corinth even accused him of not being a real apostle. That he had no right to say what he said or, or to judge circumstances. The criticism of Paul forced him to change his plans in visiting them. So along with the accusation of insincerity and apostolic uh, impropriety that he wasn't really a real minister, they heaped on the accusations of him being a flake. Oh, you say one thing and you do another. And so Paul planned to visit Corinth but changed his mind when he became the center of attention. When he became the focus of controversies, rumors, criticisms were flying everywhere, making it impossible for him to minister to people. And by the way, when people gather together and the one thing that everyone has in common is that they all hate the pastor. That makes church really difficult. And so Paul is forced to go elsewhere, ministering to the people from a distance. And now Paul gives the reasons why he can't presently minister in Corinth. Paul loves the people. And he wants to minister to them. So what will Paul do in the face of mounting opposition and growing criticism? He will go forward in Christ. Paul will defend his actions in verse 17. He will deny the charge of being fickle in chapter 1, verse 17. He denies the falsehood. He denies his accusers in verses 18 through 24. You know, it was Dale Carnegie who said, the small man flies into a rage over the slightest criticism, but the wise man is eager to learn from those who have censured him and reproved him. For Paul, the criticism hasn't resulted 
in blind self-defense. For Paul, the criticism has brought about a broken heart. And so Paul will step carefully as he goes forward. He will delay discipline in verses 23 and 24. Paul makes it clear that he's not trying to deceive the Corinthians in verse 23 or dominate them in verse 24. Paul doesn't want to be the source of their pain in chapter 2 verse 1. He doesn't want to enter into unnecessary conflict with the people that he genuinely loves in verse 4 of chapter 2. Paul has no desire... To be attacked over and over again. Who does? Except for some people who have perverse pleasure in being beaten. So Paul will make a strong appeal. And look, the minister needs to apply the appropriate discipline. Go back to chapter 1. Look at verse 23. It says, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. So what is Paul saying? I'm going to suggest to you that in part... What Paul is about to do is lay the groundwork about being careful of how to go forward concerning the matter of friendship, fellowship, relationship and discipline. You'll remember, again, Paul is accused of every conceivable weakness and fault. If you forgot, look at chapter 1, verses 12 through 22. And so when he says, moreover, I will call God as witness against my soul, it means that Paul calls God himself as a witness. Now, remember what a witness is. It's a person who has a knowledge of the facts. It is a person who is willing to communicate those facts. It's a person who has a reputation for honesty. Paul knows what you know. That you can't look inside of a person's heart. Do you have the ability to crack open a person's heart and look into their soul and see what's motivating them? Paul understands that the Corinthians don't really know his motives. He can't see into their hearts necessarily. You can't see. I can't see into your heart. You can't see into my heart. So what's going on? We know that the Bible says human beings look on the outside, but God judges the heart. And since no one can discern the internal motives, Paul calls on God to confirm the fact of his inward motives. He's calling on the Lord himself. And some members of the Corinthian church were corrupt in their doctrine. They were also immoral in their behavior. Some of them were living in blatant, unrepentant, Sin. Some were teaching doctrines that were opposed to the word of God and to the character of God. And Paul made the decision that it was not best that he be with them in such an explosive atmosphere of controversy and corruption. And part of the reason seems to be that had he shown up. It would have been. With the rod of correction. Remember it was Teddy Roosevelt who said. Speak softly. And carry a big stick. 
And if Paul were to show up at this particular moment and at this particular time, he might theologically speak softly, but he's going to carry a great big rod of correction. And Paul knew that as an apostle and as a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he did have authority to deal with their sin and their shame. You see, as much as people hate what I'm about to say, I still have to say it. Right is right and wrong is wrong. Good is not evil and evil is not good. And your pastor will never, ever do you a favor by calling righteousness sin and sin righteousness. We have a responsibility to say That there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. And with that in mind, Paul also wants to affirm in no uncertain terms that he does not exercise dominion over their faith. He doesn't play the part of the tyrant or the bully. He says, moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Verse 24, not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand Paul is going to take a moment. He understands that because they're swallowed by controversy and because of these difficulties, he's made the choice that now is not a good time for him to show up. And so when he says not that we have dominion over your faith, Paul is is not wanting to play the tyrant. He's not. Paul is an absolute failure as a cult leader. He can't and doesn't have any desire to manipulate people or lord it over them or dictate to them. Paul wants to be viewed as a helper and as a friend. Paul reminds them that each one stands in their own faith. The text actually reads, for by faith you stand. We might read this, for in faith you stand fast. That is There's no need for them to be corrected about the faith. They stand firm in the faith. What? Faith in Jesus. People are saved by grace through faith as they confidently look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of faith. People are saved by grace through faith. They're kept by grace through faith. The point that Paul is making is your standing in God and in Christ isn't based on the favor or the disfavor of Paul. And the same is true of me and you. Your relationship with God and your fellowship with God and the circumstances of what's going on inside of your heart isn't based on how I feel about you or what I think about you. And the same is true for me. No matter what you think about me or don't think about me, my Friendship and fellowship with God is rooted and grounded in the person of Jesus Christ, in his death and in his resurrection. So what does Paul mean? The Corinthian believers stand in their own faith. 
their own relationship with God in Christ. It's not dependent on Paul's dominion or control. And this should serve as a warning for cult leaders who want to lord it over people's life. Who want to say, you can go here, or you can go there, or you can marry this person, or you cannot marry that person, or you should do this, or you should do do that, or you should go on this mission field, or you should do that. You know what? That's way, way too much responsibility. I have enough challenges just leading my own life before the Lord. I don't have time to live my life and your life. And so what what is he in effect saying? He's saying, I need to remind you of something that I respect you as a person. And so think about what Paul is saying. He says, I don't want to exercise inappropriate authority or manipulate you. And so what does Paul mean when he says, but we are fellow workers for your joy. Paul's goal is to be a helper. Paul's goal is to work with them. Paul's goal is to join in their efforts. And here's the idea. He wants to join in their efforts to grow and mature. Why? To help them fulfill their joy. Why? Because their joy isn't in the apostolic ministry of Paul the Apostle. Their joy is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says... I'm not here to lord it over you, and I'm not here to dominate you, and I'm not here to control you. I'm here in an effort to feed you so that you'll grow in grace, so that you'll mature, so that you'll understand the difference between right and wrong and good and evil and what constitutes appropriate and inappropriate behavior. And then as you grow, remember, joy is the is is the fruit of the spirit that comes when you are filled with the knowledge that you are in the place where God wants you to be. And so the minister shouldn't be the source of pain. Look what it says in verse one. But I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. Paul has no desire to be the thorn in their flesh or the source of pain in their lives. There's nothing worse in a pastor's life than when he walks into a room and they go, I must be in trouble. The pastor's here. Paul doesn't want to be the source of pain in the lives of the believers. And so, as we look, Paul writes, but I determined this within myself. It translates from the Greek word, look at the word determined. It's the Greek word in the aorist tense for the root verb, krino. Krino is often translated in the New Testament to judge. As a matter of fact, It's translated that way 88 times out of the 114 times that it's used in the Greek New Testament. The original meaning, krino, meant to divide. It meant to cut down a line. So the the issue is to divide in such a way uh, that you're going to make a selection. I heard someone say, today I'm only going to have two pieces of pie. And so he took the pie and he cut it in half. 
Yeah, the portions are all dependent upon how you divvy up the pie. The original meaning to divide or select in this context, I think, means to reach a decision. And so I think this is why the New, New Testament translators translates this, but I determined this within myself. The implication being, I began to think through what's going on. About what's going on in the Corinthian church and what's going on in, in my own apostolic ministry. And I began to think about what's going on. And I made the decision that I didn't want to be the source of, 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 of pain. The previous visit resulted in pain. And so Paul writes, literally in the text it reads, not again in pain to come. In the next five verses, by the way, we're going to find a noun, a Greek noun. It's lype, L-Y-P-E. And there's a verb and a noun. Lype, the noun. Lipeo is the verb, L-Y-P-E-O. Lipe is going to be used twice. Lipeo is going to be used five times. In the text, it's translated sorrow in, in chapter 2. But I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. The, the Old King James, I think, if memory serves me correctly, translates this heaviness. Because it's a, it means a weight. And in this particular instance, the old King James is very, very good. Um, sorrow, again in verse 3 and verse 7. To make sorry in verse 2. It's translated grieved or cause grief in verse 5. The implication being a heaviness of circumstance that creates an atmosphere where it's almost impossible to be able to serve. The verse begs the question of chapter 2, but I determined this within myself that I would not come again. It begs the question of how many times has he been there? Remember here in verse 1 he says, come again in sorrow. And so how many times had Paul actually gone to Corinth? Well, scholars seem to suggest that the only visit that we can be certain of is the visit when he actually established the church and founded the church. Again, there seems to be some indication that he wanted to go back, but apparently was unable to go back. The whole point, I think, begins, it, it is in part that we don't have to know the answer to that question. We don't not have to know how many times he had actually shown up in order to get benefit from the verse. The benefit of the verse is, I didn't want to show up and make life miserable for you. And so, in verse 2, the minister should avoid conflict with the ones you love. Look what it says in verse 2. For if I made you sorrowful, same word, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? Now, when you read that, you're probably scratching your head going, what? 
What in the world is Paul saying? How am I to understand what I'm looking at? I'm going to suggest to you that the meaning seems to be, if I hurt you, who will be left to make me glad but all you sad people? In other words, if I show up and everybody's crying, it's really hard to have a joy-filled experience. My wife is watching a nine-month-old baby. His name is AJ. He's nine months old. And every day when he comes over to our house, I say to him, is today the happiest day of your life? And he goes, I go, that's great. I said, did you hear Obama's inauguration speech? How did it make you feel? And he went, No matter how good or bad, he just radiates joy and happiness. And so if Paul was saying, if I hurt you, who is there to make me glad but sad people? That won't bring any comfort. Paul takes no joy in being the source of pain. And I know that this should be a surprise to some of you because as you read the Bible and you read the New Testament and sometimes it seems a little bit harsh or a little bit blunt or a little bit in your face, we're, we're, we're seeing something. Paul is never so revealing as he is in this letter. He is going to open up his heart to the Corinthian people. He is going to reveal what's really going on inside of him. He's called the Lord to be his witness. He's basically saying, look, I don't take any joy whatsoever in being the source of pain. On the contrary, Paul wants to look at the Corinthians as a source of joy for himself and his companions. Another way of putting it is this. Look, I don't want to make your life miserable. And to be honest, I don't want you to make my life miserable. That seems pretty fair, doesn't it? How in the world... Would Paul be able to reap joy if all he sows is sorrow? Paul wants to provide the Corinthians with reasons to rejoice. Because it doesn't help to live a lie. It doesn't help to conduct yourself in an ungodly fashion. Paul is, has no interest in compromising the truth or godly behavior. And it's important that you understand that even as he's speaking, is he encouraging the sinner to continue in their sin? No. Is he, con is he encouraging the liar to continue in the lie? No. Is he encouraging the hypocrite to continue to live a life of hypocrisy? No. What he's basically trying to say is, look, I wanted to show up so that you could understand what it means to experience life and love and joy and forgiveness and hope 
and God's grace and God's mercy. And if the Apostle Paul shows up with the rod, if he shows up with the instrument of discipline, delivering a message of rebuke to the congregation, the net result is everyone's sad. It's sort of like what happened when we were teaching through the book of Jeremiah and you're coming in week after week going, I know this is going to be a message about judgment. And you said, look, if I want to be sad, I can stay at home and watch Oprah. Who wants to be sad all the time? Paul makes it clear that he would have loved to have a joyful welcome, to be the source of joy and to be the recipient of joy. Someone once said, wouldn't it be nice if everyone who is tempted to point a finger would instead hold out a helping hand? And so Paul is basically saying, look, I, I didn't want to show up and have to spank you. It's like being a mom and a dad. Can you imagine if holding out your hand and every time you hold up your hand, your child thinks you're going to hit them? Is that really the kind of relationship you want to have? Is that really the kind of fellowship you want to have? Someone said, wouldn't it be nice if we could discover wealth as easily as we find fault? Now, imagine that it was just as easy to get rich as it was to find fault in other people. We'd all be billionaires. I saw a sign. Wanted. Christians who overlook their brothers and sisters' faults as easily as they do their own. I like that. Again, the point isn't to pretend that sin isn't sin. Or that a problem isn't a problem. But that we're looking for a reason not to separate, but we're looking for a reason to stay together. And so in verse 3, the minister should get out of harm's way. Look at verse 3. He says, and I wrote this very thing to you lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy. Having confidence in you. All that my joy is the joy of you all rather than be a source of sorrow and then experience sorrow from a personal visit. He basically says. We need to deal with this. But I thought that the best way that we could deal with this is for for me to write a letter. Now, again, if you've ever been in a conflict, if you've ever had a problem, if there's ever been a division, if there has ever been an argument, if there's ever been a criticism in your life, you know what's really dangerous about a letter is it's there for everyone to read forever. But you know what the advantage of a letter is? It's really hard to argue with it. You're actually forced to look at it and you might read something and you might say, hey, wait a minute, time out. Hey, that isn't the way it is. Hey, that isn't necessarily true. You're actually sort of forced to go, OK, I'm going to have to read the first sentence and the first paragraph and the second paragraph and the third paragraph. Paul's hope is that the letter would accomplish the desired result that the Corinthians themselves 
would exercise the discipline in connection with the offending brother and that Paul's subsequent visit would not have all of the baggage of the strained relations between the people he so dearly loved. In other words, rather than be the source of conflict and controversy, he wanted people to say, I understand that some of you think that I'm not really sincere. I understand that some of you doubt my apostolic authority. I know that there's a group of people who understand and recognize my ministry. I understand that there's a group of people who don't. And I'm hoping and praying that you'll be able to work this out amongst yourselves. When Paul says, and I wrote this very thing to you, What? What letter is he making reference to? Well, again, in your Bible, you have a book called 1 Corinthians. (laughs) Now, also, scholars seem to indicate that there are at least three writings that Paul talks about. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, which we're reading, and what some scholars call the painful letter, which is now lost. Wouldn't it be amazing if we found it? The painful, lost letter. So when Paul writes, and I wrote this very thing to you. Is he speaking about 1 Corinthians? Or is he speaking about the painful letter? We actually don't know the answer to that question. Scholars are divided. Well, he's making reference to 1 Corinthians, and there seems to be a strong argument for that, because in the first letter, Paul talks about divisions in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, disorders, chapter 5, chapter 6, difficulties, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. So if your first letter is about division, disorder, and difficulty, not a whole lot of joy. Paul wrote about marriage and divorce. Paul wrote about liberty and license. Paul wrote about women and worship. Paul wrote about gifts in the body. Paul wrote about death and the resurrection. Paul wrote about giving and receiving. But it doesn't seem to be the kind of Anguish and pain and soul-gripping circumstances. So there's some argument that maybe it is the lost letter, the painful letter. And so Paul writes in verse 4, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, Not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Paul describes the letter as coming out of much affliction. He uses the term anguish of heart. He uses the term many tears. Paul reveals the depths of his heart, how deeply grieved that sin had been tolerated in the congregation. Now, part of the temptation that you might have is that the affliction and the anguish 
and the tears come from the accusation that he is insincere and that he isn't a real apostle and that there's even some some talk of whether or not he's even a Christian. I actually don't think that that's what's being said here. I genuinely believe that it's something else. Here, the word translated anguish, sinoke, the Greek word translated here, and in Luke chapter 21, verse 25, it means to hold it together. It means to experience pressure on every side. And so it could be translated to oppress. Paul is describing the tribulation, the affliction that he suffers. Not simply because of the hostility that was shown to him in Corinth. But I'm going to suggest to you, it's because of the sin that the Corinthian church has tolerated. This anguish of heart and this deep, deep affliction isn't because he's upset that people are saying bad things about him. He's upset because for whatever reason that he doesn't quite understand. The Corinthian church is tolerating a kind of wickedness and sinfulness that makes it impossible for true ministry and real joy to be experienced. Paul is describing the tribulation, the affliction that he suffered And he uses the same expression that the Old Testament psalmist used in describing distress when God's enemies were coming upon him. And so he talks about a kind of pain that leaves the pastor sobbing and in tears. Again, he isn't crying because of persecution, hostility, or accusation. I think that he's, he's crying because suffering is better than sinning. Spurgeon said, there is more evil in a drop of sin than in an ocean of affliction. Better burn for Christ than turn from Christ. And this is the key concept that I think Spurgeon hits on. Because of their sin, they were turning from Christ. And see, some people might get upset with me because I genuinely am trying to create an atmosphere in our church where everyone will feel welcome, where they'll they'll get to hear the gospel, where they'll get to experience God's love and the forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ. And every once in a while, we'll have a couple of services and the place will be packed. And all of a sudden, a man and a woman who claim to be Christians will come into our church and they'll be living together without benefit of marriage. And there might be any number of reasons why that might might happen. And so people will bring it to my attention. And you know, my very first response isn't to kick them out of the church. My very first response is, tell me about yourself. Tell me about your relationship with God. Tell me about your relationship with Christ. Tell me about 
what it means to know and to love him and to serve him. Why? Because the truth is there's two kinds of people who show up at our church. There are people who are making inquiry onto whether or not Christianity is true and whether or not Christ is Lord. And there are people who claim to be Christians, but they live their lives as if that's not really the case. And so Paul, crazy Paul, silly Paul, he lives under the impression that Christians should act like Christians, that they should behave like Christians, that Christians should be grieved over their sin. People should be grieved when sin presents itself in such a way that friendships and fellowship are at risk. Later, Paul will have choice words for those who handle the word of God deceitfully. And in chapter four, verse two, he'll say, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, as he's dealing with these problems of unconfessed, repetitive sin, it puts people at risk because they begin to with the idea that God doesn't care and that Christ's forgiveness isn't real and that Christianity is a great big joke. And so they'll say, why should I go to church? Why, you know, why should I be here? And why should I believe this? And why should I have anything to do with this? Paul weeps because he understands the power of sin to separate and to hurt and to divide and to destroy. And so, Paul writes what he writes. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have for you. In other words, I didn't write this in order to make you sorry. You misunderstood my motive. It seems clear that Paul was way more upset and way more grieved by the sin of the Corinthians than the Corinthians themselves. And so he makes it clear that the letter isn't an attempt to hurt their feelings. But it's proof of deep love for them. And it's that word that you're familiar with, agape. In other words, this isn't just the love that's merely sentimental. And you know what sentimental means? It means emotion without commitment. It's not mere emotion. It's an earnest and sincere desire to provide what is best for them. That's what real agape love is. In other words, real love is a willingness to do what's right for the person that you care about. And in what cruel world, in what wicked world, is the best choice to pretend that sin isn't sin? Again, it isn't to call the sin or the sinner out. It's to remind the person that there is love and there's grace and there's forgiveness and there's hope for people who find themselves enslaved by sin. 
And so Paul describes the love that he has for them as abundant love. Isn't that interesting? Look at verse 4 again. But that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. I suspect this means that the Corinthian drama had claimed way more physical and spiritual and emotional capital than all the other churches. Does he have a special place in his heart for the church at Philippi? Yes. Does he have a special place for, for the churches in Galatia? Yes. Does he have a special place in his heart for all of the churches that he in Colossae and the Lycus Valley? He has gone from place to place and congregation to congregation. He has poured his heart and his soul and his life into these congregations. But what he is in effect saying is because of what's going on with Corinth, There was never a single church that he had more mental and emotional and spiritual investment. Often you can tell how much goes into any friendship or relationship by the amount of tears that you shed. And I think that this is what this means. Would the Corinthians understand And recognize and accept all that Paul had done for them. Were the people who questioned his sincerity or his apostolic authority or his deep love and his commitment to see them grow in grace and the knowledge of the truth. If they could have followed him from place to place. If they could have seen him on his knees weeping and crying and pouring his heart out to the Lord as he begins to express his deep desire for them to turn from the sin that they're involved in so that there can be a place of maturity, forgiveness and reconciliation. The Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend. And yet we're sometimes filled with resentment. If we're counseled or warned or admonished in a godly manner. Hey, this isn't good for you. This isn't right for you. Hey, I've fallen in love with this guy, but he doesn't really know Jesus. I've fallen in love with this girl, but she doesn't really know Christ. Hey, I thought it would be a good idea to move in with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. I thought it would be... Okay, if I did this or if I did that. We sometimes neglect to consider that someone has taken an interest in us and our walk and our life so that when you come to that person and you go, hey, you know what? I couldn't help but noticing that you come to church and that you bring your Bible and that you have a deep, deep desire to know about the things of God and the things of Christ. But there's this problem. And that you need to deal with it. We should welcome righteous rebuke as a plea from the Lord. And be grateful for it. Henry C. Link wrote, If you want to make a man your enemy, tell him simply, you're wrong. This method works every time. And you'll notice what Paul is doing. He just doesn't bluntly come out and say, hey, you're wrong. 
He's saying, I am working with diligence and faith in order to bring you to a place of maturity. There's an old Yiddish proverb that says, if a man calls you a donkey, don't worry about it. If two men call you a donkey, hey, if three men call you a donkey, maybe it's time that you get a saddle. Paul wants to avoid hardship and pain. Paul wants to exercise wisdom and diplomacy. Harry Ironside used to say, if what they're saying about you is true, mend your ways. If it isn't true, forget it and go on and serve the Lord. It was a very long time ago. Someone told me, if the criticism is untrue, disregard it. If it's unfair, don't be irritated by it. If it's justified, learn from it. It was President Lincoln who once issued orders transferring certain men. And the order should have, by rights, come from the Secretary of War, Edward Stanton. And when Stanton received the order, he refused to carry it out. And he told anybody who would listen that he thought that the president was wrong, wrong, wrong. And he ended up calling Lincoln a fool. Then Lincoln said, quote, if Stanton said I'm a fool, then I must be. For almost certainly he's almost always right. I'm going to go check this out for myself. And after Lincoln talked with Secretary Stanton, Lincoln became convinced that Stanton was right and he was wrong and he withdrew the order. Isn't it funny? When another person, when, when we see another person as bitter and spiteful, we think that they're ugly. But when we're bitter and spiteful, we chalk it up to nerves. When another person is set in their ways, we say that they're obstinate. When we're set in our ways, we see it as the courage of our convictions and being firm. When another person spends a lot of money, we see them as being extravagant. But when we do it, we chalk it up to generosity. When other people see the flaw, when when the other person sees the flaws in things, we call them cranky. And when we see the flaws in things, we're exercising discrimination. When the other person says what he thinks, we think they're being spiteful and judgmental. But when we do it, we call it being frank. When the other person doesn't like your friend, they're blinded by prejudice. But when you don't like their friend, you're just showing what a good judge of character you are. Benjamin Franklin said, any fool can criticize, condemn, and complain. And most fools do. Paul is looking for a reason to bring people together and not keep them apart. 
Paul is looking for a reason to remain a minister. You see, the good pastor isn't looking for ways to kick people out of their church. The good pastor is looking for ways to keep them in. But in the end, sometimes we have to say what we mean and mean what we say. And we have to call sin, sin. We have to call right, right and wrong, wrong. Isaiah warned us, beware when people call good evil and evil good. When people call sweet bitter and bitter sweet. But I think that we learn something from Paul. He is motivated by love. He's not blinded by a sense of self-importance. There's so much more, but we have to stop. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you and we glorify you. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, we thank you that you have given us everything that pertains to life and to godliness and the knowledge of our Savior. And Lord, we understand that sometimes people won't understand what we say or what we do. But Lord, we pray that we would be as generous with them as we are with ourselves. And Lord, we pray that we would be quick to judge our motives and their motives in the light of what the Bible says. And Heavenly Father, we pray, we pray, we pray. That out of the abundance of our heart, our mouths would speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.